Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture consigned all things to sin, that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I think St. Paul's mind is more like uh, Rudyard Kipling's elephant's child than it is like Tennyson's Noble 600 or Charge of the Light Brigade. You remember that poem? Tennyson says of the Noble 600, there's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Rode the 600. Great poem. And many of us are tempted to live like that. We understand so little about life and see, it seems, just a little tip of the iceberg of God's purpose in what's going on around us that we want to say, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do and die. What's the use? Give up thinking. Don't try to figure anything out. Get on with the business of what's at hand. But if I read Galatians and Romans correctly, St. Paul didn't fall prey to that malaise of thought. Instead, he was more like Kipling. Remember this little four-liner? I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. In a world where there is a personal God who does everything according to his purpose, the two of those serving men who are important beyond all the others are who, why. And they've taught me almost all I know. Everybody knew who gave the law to Israel, but there was a big question, why? In Galatians 3.19. Not everybody cares who gave the law or why. Someone will say, you can imagine it, what difference does it make why? It's there, we have to make the most of it. Ours is but to do and die. And many in Israel did and died. Died precisely because they didn't know why the law was given. You can't make the most out of it unless you know why it's there, can you? How do you make the most out of it unless you know why God gave it? If you don't know why the light is red, you might get smashed in the intersection. If you don't know why Mr. Yuck is on the bottle, you might get poisoned. In many areas of life, yours is to reason why, lest you do and die. That's the way it is with the law of God. Romans 9.32 
Paul says that Israel stumbled into destruction not because they didn't pursue the law, but because they pursued it in the wrong way. They pursued it as though it were to be pursued by works, relying on yourself and making moral effort, instead of pursuing it by faith, trusting in the enabling power of God to help you by the spirit to get it done. In other words, moral effort can be a mortal sin. When I wrote in the standard this month that legalism is a far greater menace to the church than alcoholism, that wasn't for shock effect. That was a straightforward theological truth. Alcoholism is a tragedy. And alcoholics are in a tragic bondage and we need to bend every effort to help them, especially if they're in the church. But legalism is so much more subtle, so much more pervasive, and in the end, so much more destructive. Satan clothes himself with light. Becomes an angel of light, Paul said. And you know what he makes his base of operations? The law. The commandments of God are Satan's foremost base of operations in the church, according to Paul. And the human heart, which is so inveterately proud and unsubmissive, when that law comes to the heart, it loves to use the law, morality, and religion to express its rebellion. Romans 10.3 says, in seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. If somebody were to ask you, how do you act insubmissively, unsubmissively to the, to the righteousness of God? You would probably say, be unrighteous. Paul says, be righteous. Righteousness is the way Israel escaped. From God, their own righteousness, self-wrought righteousness. Galatians three nineteen to 22 gives two answers to the question, why then the law? And we need to know why. If we don't know why the law was given, we will misuse it to our peril. And so this is a very practical message this morning because it provides us a basis for knowing how to and how not to handle the law. The two answers that these verses give are repeated. Once in verse 19, once in verse 22. The first answer comes in the first part of verse 19. Why then the law? The law was added because of transgressions or for the sake of transgressions. And I'll try to show in a minute what that means and I think it's virtually the same as the first half of verse 22. So here's where it's repeated. First half of verse 22, where it says the scripture, which I think is the same as the law, that is the Torah, the Old Testament law in its first five books, or scripture in its first five books. The law consigned all things to sin or shut up everybody under sin. That's the first purpose. Second answer to the question, why then the law, is the last half of verse 22. 
that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And I think that is the same as the phrase in verse 19, which says, until or till the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So let me try to summarize the two answers that are given to the question. The law was given first to shut up the world under sin or to increase trespasses. I'll come back and show where I get that in a minute. The second purpose of the law is to cause the inheritance or the blessing or life which was promised to the seed not to be fulfilled short of the seed, that is, Jesus Christ. The law didn't bring life. It preserved man until life could be given through Jesus Christ and in no other way. So I'm going to stress these two purposes this morning, or rather just the first one, because the second one I want to save till next week when we talk about the law as a custodian that leads us to Christ. So the main focus is on that first purpose. The law came in because of transgressions. But before I get into that, I have to say a brief word about uh, verse 19 and 20 here, the latter part of verse 19. It says, the law was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And I'm not going to talk about that verse this morning because I don't know what it means. I spent hours and hours trying to find out whether I could come up with something at least to suggest, and I've just decided we better not uh, spend any time on it. I cannot understand how the two halves of verse 20 relate to each other. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And if you want to write me a letter this week or uh, stop by at the door afterwards and answer that question, be more than happy to hear the answer and uh, put it in a star this week. And if I find out, I'll tell you. I'll keep working on it. But uh, E.D. Burton and F.F. Bruce and their two commentaries estimate the number of interpretations that have been offered at 300. So I'm not going to chip in. But that doesn't mean the text as a whole becomes opaque. We still can understand the main point, I think. So let's look at why the law was given according to verse 19 and especially the first half of verse 22. Why then the law? The law was added because of transgressions. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that... Uh, there were lots of transgressions in the in the world and the law came in to prescribe punishments for those transgressions. Or does the law mean I mean, does that sentence mean that the law came in to produce transgressions where there weren't any? And I think it's the latter. Turn with me to Romans chapter five, verse 20 and keep your finger in Galatians 3 and in Romans 5, because there are a bunch of texts in Romans that we're going to we're going to look at together. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, makes, I think, very clear what the meaning of Galatians 3.19 is. When it says in Galatians 3.19, the law came in uh, or was added because of uh, transgressions, I think it means the same as this. The law came in 
to increase the trespass. See that in Romans 5.20? That's the closest parallel in the New Testament to Galatians 3.19. So what I want to do is try to figure out what that means. The law came in to increase trespasses. And I think there are two senses in which that's the case. Back up in chapter 4 of Romans to verse 15. Romans 4.15. And the first sense or the first meaning, I think, has a clue here. Paul says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression or trespass. Same word. Now, what does that mean? I think what he's saying there is, if you don't trust your doctor, nobody will know that, and you may not even know it, until he writes you out a prescription, gives it to you, and you toss it in the garbage. Then he knows you don't trust him because he has written out what the obedience of faith will do and you won't do it. That's the function of the law. The law is given to turn latent, hidden rebellion and distrust and pride into open, visible transgressions of commandments. Nobody can... Hide once the law is on the scene. So when Galatians 3.19 says that the law was given because of transgressions and Romans 5.20 adds that it came in to increase the trespass, Paul means that it functions like a doctor's prescription to show who trusts the doctor and who doesn't. By prescribing the obedience of faith, he turns hidden sin into open disobedience. Now, there's a second sense in which Romans 5.20 is to be taken, I think. The law doesn't just make openly manifest hidden rebellion by turning it into specific trespasses of commands. It also increases that rebellion. Look at Romans 5.20 again. The law came in to increase the trespass, but it goes on to say, and where sin increased, grace did too, which is going to be the good news that we'll end on this morning. But let's not short circuit the teaching of the text. Sin doesn't just become visible when it meets the law. It's worse. It's intensified. The rebellion and insubordination and distrust of the human heart intensifies and expands when it meets the law. There are some passages in Romans 7 which make that very clear. Let's uh, look at a couple of these. Verse 5 of Romans 7. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. See that? We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The sinful inclinations, then, of the heart are not just exposed by the law. They're stirred up. And they're magnified and increased by the law. And, and I'll try to say why. See if this doesn't fit your experience and, and your kids' experience. See this in kids, especially, because you're kind of the law in, in your kids' life. Apart from the Holy Spirit, all of us are utterly self-centered. 
That's our nature. By the fall, we come into the world utterly self-centered. The Holy Spirit can overcome that. But apart from the Holy Spirit, we are utterly self-centered. And when an utterly self-justifying, self-centered person sees the law approaching, an authority over it, laying claim on it, going to change it, it mounts every effort to justify itself all the more furiously. That's how sin is increased. Then there's another text in Romans 7. Drop down to uh, verse 13. Did that then which is good, meaning the law, bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good, that's the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, that's our first purpose for the law, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's the second purpose. So that verse contains both senses in which the law comes in to increase trespasses. First, that sin might be shown, made visible in terms of transgressions. And second, that the law might show sin and might make sin to become become really sinful beyond measure by stirring it up, making rebellion all the more furious. So the law reveals and intensifies sin. But, Paul says, the law is not sinful. The law is holy and just and good. On the contrary, the corruption of the human heart is magnified by the fact that our hearts are able to take something as pure as the law and make it a vehicle for our self-justification and our selfish passions and covetousness and death. Well, I hope that gives some idea then of what Galatians 3.19 means when it says, why then the law? The law was added because of, that is, for the sake of increasing transgressions. It was added to make sin visible and to stir up sin and make it all the more virulent. Now let's look at verse 21 and 22 and see how they tie into this same purpose. Is the law then against the promise, the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture consigned all things to sin so that what was promised to faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. I think verse 21 makes the same point as last week's message from verses 15 to 18 of this chapter. That is... The law came in 430 years after the promise, but the point of verse 18 or verse 17 is no way did it annul the promise or alter the promise. As verse 21 says, they're not contrary to each other at all. The promise was made. Remember back in verse 16, this is what was so hard last week. The promise was made to Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ. So the promise, in order to be fulfilled, has to be fulfilled in and through Jesus. 
Therefore, if the law had come along and fulfilled that by giving life, inheritance, blessing, it would have short-circuited the promise and been against the promise. But it isn't against the promise because, as verse 21 says, it couldn't make alive. All it could do, according to verse 22, was box people into sin until Jesus came. So the purpose of the law is not to make people alive, short-circuit the promise, but to hold them in sin until Christ comes. And now, two crucial questions. Why couldn't the law make people alive? And why does it shut people up in sin? What does that mean? And the answer to both of those questions is the same, I think. And it's found in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. So back to Romans, which is a commentary on Galatians 3 here. And since it's inspired, I feel free to quote it. Romans chapter 8, 3 and 4. Now listen and see if you hear link-ups with Galatians 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's Galatians 3, 21. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So just as Galatians 3.21 and Romans 8.3 say that there's something you can't do, that's what we know about the law. The law can't make alive, according to Galatians 3.21. It couldn't do it. The reason the law could not make alive, then, according to this verse in uh, Romans 8.3, is not a defect in the law. It's a defect in us, isn't it? Look at, look at the verse again. The law, weak as it was, through the flesh. That's our flesh, or the flesh of the Israelites when it was given. The reason that the law compounded sin instead of giving life was that the recipients of the law were ruled by the flesh, not the spirit. Romans 8, 7, seventh verse of that chapter, describes the kind of mind that the law met with when it came. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the answer to our two crucial questions, why couldn't the law make people alive, is this. Because they were ruled by the flesh and were without the Holy Spirit, by which you must walk in order to fulfill the law. Why didn't the law, or why did the law shut people up in sin, box them in to sin? Because when the law came, it met with people who were ruled by the flesh and did not have the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, the law kept people in sin and didn't give them life because it was not accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit to enable people to obey. Wherever the command of God 
is proclaimed, but sovereign, gracious enabling by the Holy Spirit is withheld, the law will incur vicious, self-centered expressions of rebellion. Either two forms it'll take. People will reject the law out of hand and rebel. And in that way, say, I'm going to go my own way. don't care. Depend on myself to determine what's right. Or, and this is the danger in Galatia, people will, with that same unchanged heart, embrace the law and make every effort to prove that they can depend on themselves in obeying it. And it's the same sin and the same evil and the same danger. Therefore, Paul's point in Galatians 3, 19 to 20 is that God gave the law without pouring out the Holy Spirit on the mass of Israel so that sin would become exceedingly sinful and be manifest for everybody to see in transgressions. Now, did Paul make all that up or did the law itself say that about itself? We don't have time for you to look all these texts up, but let me just lead you through a little redemptive history of, of texts. And I'll mention the texts if you want to jot them down, but it'll take us too long if you look them up. Moses himself, the lawgiver, in Deuteronomy 29.4, after he had given the law to Israel, said, To this day, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to see. Or ears to hear. And therefore, Moses knew that when the law met people like that, all it would produce is condemnation and death. And so he said in Deuteronomy 31 26, Take this law, put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. He knew that the law was just going to condemn them because it met with hard hearts that were stubborn and uncircumcised. And so the law shut people up in sin instead of giving them life. But the end of the story is a happy one. And even Moses saw the happy ending. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart someday, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And Jeremiah picks up the promise in Jeremiah 31, 33. After those days, says the Lord, I will put within you the law and I will write it upon their hearts. And Ezekiel picks it up in Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart I will give you, says the Lord, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then the law will not bring condemnation anymore. Or we will do it. And then Paul in Romans 8, 4 announces it's here. It's here. The promised day has arrived. God sent his son, condemned sin in the flesh in order that 
the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The spirit has come. Now the Holy Spirit enables the children of God to fulfill the just requirement of the law. Bring us to glory. Not destruction. So let me close now with three lessons that I would like to apply to our situation here from this passage. First, God devoted a thousand years, more than a thousand years, of redemptive history to help us see ourselves in Israel's failures as they confronted the law. God devoted a thousand plus years of redemptive history to uncover the junk in the human heart. That's a long time to devote to exposing sin. It must be really deep. It must be really subtle. And I think the admonition to us is that we ought to look and be appalled at the mirror of the law and admit that even we who've tasted the powers of the age to come have been justified by faith freely through the death of our Lord Jesus. Even we must recognize that there are yet roots of pride and insubordination that have to be dug out. Second implication, we ought to cherish Jesus Christ. And cherish the grace that opened our hearts to receive him. The lesson of the law is that we are utterly, utterly dependent on the grace of God. For receiving Jesus. Hard hearted that we were. Heart transplants are not made by the patients. Contrition. Humility. Lowliness. Gratitude. Let it flow up out of your heart as you remember where sin abounded. Grace did much more about. And finally, if God thought it wise and helpful to spend a thousand years to get the sediment of pride and rebellion and distrust off the bottom of the human heart where it was invisible into the cup and stir it up, make it visible then I think my preaching should too. Or at least I should try my best. More than ever, I'm convinced that pastors should preach, Sunday school teachers should teach, you members should admonish each other in such a way that the sediment of sin that lies often unconscious more often just hypocritically concealed, would be stirred up, made evident to the sinner, brought out so that it can be dealt with. Could it be that at Bethlehem, one of the reasons we don't have showers of blessing, but only raindrops, is that from Sunday to Sunday there are several dozen people in the congregation whose lives have a big layer of muck, of sinful muck at the bottom 
nice and settled out of view, concealed from the other church members, concealed often from the family, with no intention of doing anything about it by way of repentance, confession, cleansing, and renewal. Could it be? And if it could, then the last implication is that we should really pray that the Word of God, as it goes forth from this this pulpit and from Sunday school classes and your Bible studies and in your own Bible reading, that the Word of God would stir it up until you can't stand it anymore and have to run from sin to the cross and get it cleansed, purified, forgiven, renewal. Oh, what a powerful people we would be. What a happy people we would be if there weren't that core of people who aim to stay sinners with a veneer of righteousness in church. Let's pray. Almighty God and holy and merciful Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us, because we all have sin in our lives. That you would root it out, O God, by your Holy Spirit. And for those who won't admit it and who are concealing sexual abuses, drug abuses, cheating abuses, all manner of unspirituality, concealing them, And going through outward motions, Lord, convict them. Help them to see that they're just ruining life for themselves and the church. And grant that they turn and repent. Hear the great news of amazing grace. That there is forgiveness to be had. And where sin has abounded for many years, grace will much more abound. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.